I wish you all could have been in our youth ministry uh, with me this morning. Our student ministry meets at 9.30, about an hour before. And we did the exact opposite in our student ministry today, what we're getting ready to do right here as we get ready to look at the new year. And I told our students, in the main service, we're going to look forward. We're going to look at 2013, and we're going to talk about how, as people, how, as a church, we can have a very purposed, directed, um, maybe greatest year we've ever had in 2013. So today, we're going to look forward. As you, and, and I want to tell you, today, today is going to be a note-taking day. There are some days you just like really sit and listen. Today, you're going to be writing. So I want to encourage you, get your notes, get your pen, pull out your iPad or your iPhone or whatever you're going to have to take notes, because today... I'm, I'm going to give you just a lot of real practical material, but you're going to want to have this outline so that you can go home and, and put a little, hang a little meat on the skeleton that I'm going to give you this morning. Uh, and I told my wife, Danielle, I said, you know, if people, if, if you will not put in an additional hour of conversation with your spouse, with your family, if you will not put in a little time after today's message on your own between now and January 1, this message will do nothing for you. But if you take good notes today... And if you listen and then you go and you actually apply what you're going to learn, I believe you can have one of the greatest years of your life. So we're going to look forward. But in the student ministry today, we look backwards. And here is the 30-second version of what I gave our teens today. And if you can, in 30 seconds, do this, I want you to do this. I ask all of our teenagers to look back at 2012, and I ask them to grade themselves spiritually by either giving themselves an A, a B, a C, a D, or an F. Um, I never understood why the E is not in that scale somewhere, but an A, a B, a C, a D, or an F. Uh, a C is this. Um, I, I think I'm an okay Christian. I'm probably like every other Christian. Uh, a D is, I could have done a lot better. An F is, I failed spiritually last year. An A would be, I had the greatest year of my life spiritually. A B would be, you know what, it wasn't the best year, but I think it was a little above average. So I would like for you right now, and I would tell you to put it on your ser- to write it on your sermon notes, but whoever's behind you and beside you is going to look at it, so don't do that because we're all kind of nosy. Um, but just like in your head, I want you to give yourself a letter grade. How would you grade yourself on 2012 spiritually? A, B, C, D, or F? And is that good enough? Or do you want next year to be better? Do you need next year to be better for your family, for your life, for just your relationship with God? How would you grade yourself last year? And today, hopefully, I'm going to give you a template to make sure that next year is better. If you have your Bibles today, I want you to turn to the book of Habakkuk. Now, that is a book maybe you've never heard of. It's a book that's extremely hard to find. So here's here's my hint to you. If you don't know where Habakkuk is, and our ushers are going to come down the aisle, and they're going to pass out Bibles. If you don't have a Bible or a smartphone or a tablet where you can pull up what we're going to read, just raise your hands. Our ushers will give you a Bible. We've given away more than 300 Bibles since we started our church about 16 months ago. If you don't have a Bible, you can keep this one. It's yours. Put your name in it, and it, God bless you. It's our gift to you. If you have a Bible but just forgot it, just raise your hand. If you want to be in Scripture with us today, the ushers will give you one, and you can follow along and throw it on the table when you leave. But the easiest way to find Habakkuk is to start in the New Testament. Uh, to start in the book of Matthew or that page that maybe says New Testament, and then just go backwards. Flip through Malachi, Zechariah, you're going to flip by Haggai, you're going to flip by Zephaniah, and then you're going to come to Habakkuk. It's only three chapters. The third one is only a couple of verses. Very easy to miss, or you can just go to the table of contents and find it. But we find a book written by a guy who maybe you've never heard of. Um, maybe you say his name wrong. The correct way would be Habakkuk. A lot of people say Habakkuk. Um, but this is a guy who 
Uh, he grew up with some pretty important people. He would have, if, if there was a school for people who were prophets, Habakkuk would have went to school with Jeremiah, who you probably know from the Old Testament. He would have went to school with Daniel, who you probably know from the Old Testament. He would have went to school with Ezekiel. He was the same age, lived at the same time as these guys, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. In his book, I'm not going to give you the whole outline, the whole overview, the whole background of his book, but here's what you need to learn about his book. And you should write this down, because when I read this phrase this week, studying for my message, I thought, this is a great phrase not just to preach, but to remember and to live, because th this is really, really good. And I got this out of my MacArthur Study Bible, but it said, if you could sum up the book of Habakkuk in one phrase, here's the phrase, faith is not a one-time act, it's a way of life. Faith is not a one-time act. Faith is a way of life. That's what Habakkuk teaches us. Faith is not something you do. Faith is something you are. Faith is not something you have. Faith is something you live. Faith is not a one-time act. It's a way of life. And as you look at the title of our Bible study this morning, you're going to see that I didn't put Happy New Year because I don't know if it's going to be a Happy New Year. It might not be a Happy New Year for you. It may be the most stressed out New Year that you have ever faced. I got a text message from a family in our church this week, uh, a wife went into work on, I think, Thursday of this week, which would have been December 27th, and they brought in everyone in the company, and the bosses told them on December 31, we're shutting the doors of the company, and no one has a job anymore. That's not a happy new year. We have people who endured their first Christmas without a spouse, or their first Christmas without kids, or their first Christmas without a loved one, and, and, it, and, and it wouldn't be correct to say happy new year, because it's not a happy new year, but hopefully it can be a hopeful New Year. Hopefully when we go to bed on New Year's Eve, whatever time that is, we can wake up and say, you know what, for the next 365 days, hopefully the next 365 will be better than the last 365. Even if the last 365 were good, we want these to be better. I want to talk to you today about a hopeful New Year, but I want to use a, a verse from the book of Habakkuk, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 2, to set the template of what I'm going to ask you to do today while we study the Bible a little bit together, and then as you go home and, and as you talk and as you dream and as you think, I'm going to ask you to write down your vision for your life in 2013. Uh, I, we had a sign hanging in our locker room when I played football in college. It said, if you aim at nothing, you'll hit it every time. And some of you, your goal for 2013 is like just to live through 2013. And next December, when you look back at the year, you'll think, you know what, I didn't really accomplish anything significant. Why? Because you didn't set out to do anything significant. So today, I want to talk to you about vision, about writing down the vision and moving forward. And here's what God said to Habakkuk as he taught him about faith being a lifestyle, not just a moment. The Lord replied to Habakkuk, write down the revelation. If you have the NIV like I do today, you might circle the word revelation. In the New King James, it says vision. That's what we're going to do. We're going to write down a vision for our life this year. Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. Now, in a different version of the Bible, the New King James Habakkuk 2.2 says this, Write the vision and make it plain. Write the vision and make it plain. That's what I'm going to ask you to do for your life for 2013, to come up with a vision for your life for 2013, to write it down, to make it real plain, and then to pursue it. Why? Proverbs 29.18 says this, Where there is no vision, the people perish. Some of you, very honestly, if you were to very honestly evaluate yourself last year spiritually, some of you would say, I got a D, I got an F, and, and if I were to ask why, you'd say, you know, I just, I just wasn't really thinking spiritually. I had no vision for my life spiritually, so I failed spiritually. Where there is no vision, 
people perish. We don't want anyone in here perishing spiritually. Our mission statement as a church is to see people who are far from God become passionate Christians who make a difference in the world. We want you to thrive spiritually in your life, not only for yourself, but for others who need you to thrive spiritually. And my goal today is to help you build a structure that you can go home and look at, discuss, pray about, so that you can set some of your goals and figure out how to have the greatest year ever. I'm not going to tell you what goals to set. I'm only going to give you a framework. You know, there's a, uh, there's a popular leadership guy right now by the name of John Maxwell who goes around and speaks on leaderships, and he writes a book on leadership. But if you read everything you wrote, you can see much of what he wrote was just plagiarized from a guy named Zig Ziglar, who was a generation ago's leadership guru. And Zig Ziglar says that every leader should evaluate seven areas of his life every year, and he should set goals in these seven areas for their next year. So the seven areas I'm ripping off for him, but I'm going to lay the scriptural overtones inside of them so you can see why these areas are important for you to thrive in spiritually next year. And then you have to go and decide exactly what you, you're going to do. Some of these I'm going to move real quickly through. Like I said, you're going to want to take quick notes, get your pens ready. It's going to be like on your mark, get set, go. You might have to come back and watch this on the Internet one or two times to catch everything. But I'm going to try to fly through and give you a skeleton to go home. If you're married, discuss with your spouse. If you're single, to sit down with a cup of coffee at a table and clear out all the distractions and put together a plan to have your greatest year ever. Seven areas that you need to set goals in for the new year so you can live with extreme purpose and you can have a great, great year. Area number one, physical. Now, we get flyers in the mail for this. We see commercials. We look at people on television and movies, and, and it appears that the world is obsessed with being physically fit. I'm not really talking about being physically fit, but Scripture does talk to the physical aspect of our life. Both the Apostle Paul, who we would say is... is you know, probably the most important Christian aside from Jesus to ever live, both in his personal mentorship and to the churches he pastored. He talked about physical health. Physical health has a big bearing, believe it or not, on spiritual health and stress and marriage and parenting and everything else we do. And here's what the Bible says about physical health. It's not the most important thing in the world, but it's pretty important. Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.8, listen, physical training is of some value. Realize I said the word some. If your life is dedicated over and above everything else to being physically healthy and you're way more physically healthy than spiritually healthy, you've missed the point according to 1 Timothy 4.8. But physical training is of some value. Godliness has value for all things, though holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. 1 Corinthians 6.19 goes a step further. Why is, physical, why is, is being physically healthy important? Paul says it this way to the church at Corinth. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you've received from God. As we look at the New Testament church, as we look at New Testament mentorship, we find out that they talked about not being physically fit, but being physically healthy. Paul even spoke to Timothy in a different section of Scripture because his physical health wasn't good, and he said, until you really get healthy, you're not going to be able to minister well. So he gave him some like health remedies for him to get better. Now, I'm not a nutritionist. We have some of those in our church, but I'm not one. But I want to give you two areas of your life to evaluate. And I don't know what the answers are, but... You need to evaluate these. One, for you, what is a healthy weight for you? And are you there? You need to figure that out. You need to write that down on paper. What is a healthy weight for you? You want to outlive your kids? You want to be healthy? You want to be able to play with your kids? You want to stay away from the heart disease and the diabetes? How much are you supposed to weigh? You might have to call someone and ask them. You may know. Some of you might say, you know, right now I'm 10 pounds overweight. I'm 30, I'm 40, I'm 50. What is a healthy weight for you? You should know that. Secondly, how much sleep are you getting? 
Doctors say if you want to be healthy, you have to get at least eight hours of sleep at night. I won't ask you to raise your hand, but I know most of us in here, I put up me in this category, we get far less than eight hours of sleep every night. And you know what? Everyone else around us feels it, including ourselves physically. I'm just talking about physical health, a, a few physical goals. I'm not going to give you a diet. I'm not going to tell you that, that you should get ripped this year. I'm not going to tell you to set a bench press goal. I don't care about those things. But spiritually, it's important to be healthy and to function well. Your weight and your sleep. How are you doing in those areas? You're going to have to figure that out. Number two, financial. And we talked about this in November, but, but it's important for a Christian to be on top of their finances. I love what Dave Ramsey says. You either control your money or your money controls you. As Christians, we want to control our money. So as we set financial goals, what do biblical financial goals look like for a Christian? Well, first and foremost, you need to have a one-year written plan. We call it a budget, but you need to realize a budget is in writing, and it needs to be at least a year at a time from now to Christmas. You should be figuring out in January how much money do you have to put aside for Christmas presents next year so you don't have to put it on credit cards like you did this year. Financial, one-year written plan. That's what we do for our church. We've been working on that since October, putting together a one-year written plan. We're on about version number six right now. In the next 15 days, we'll commit that to our finance team. They'll approve it, and we as a church will say, this is how we're going to spend money this year. We do it as a church because it's wise to do. You should do it as people. I'm not going to tell you how to spend your money. But I'm going to tell you how the Bible says you should arrange it as you put together your financial plan. We talked about a word in November called the tithe. You should in your written plan, even if you can't execute it yet, you should in your written plan know what a tithe of your income is. What's tithe? It means 10%. So if you, if you say, what is tithe? It's a tenth. If you make 50000 it's $5,000. It, it's a tenth. You should figure out what that is. Why? Because of what Malachi 3.10 says. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there can be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. See if I won't open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there won't be enough room to store it. I told you in November, some of you are brand new to church. Some of you have had the worst financial situation in your life. Some of you are not physically able to tithe right now, but I told you you should always know what the tithe is, and you should be working towards it. 2.5%, 5%, 7%. Find a percentage. Know what it is. Figure out how you're going to get there in your life sooner better than later so you can have the blessing of God. The Bible also says in our financial plan we want to save. The Bible always talks about never spend everything you have. In Genesis 41, we study the life of Joseph, and we see Joseph saving 20% of then the national income of Egypt. That's probably a little heavy. If you can do that, God bless you, but it needs to be more than nothing. Joseph in Genesis 41 said, take a fifth of the harvest during the seven years of abundance, collect all the food for the, during the good years that are coming, and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh to be kept in cities for food. This food should be held in reserve. You should always have a reserve fund. A reserve fund will keep you from doing the third thing. Can you plan a year of existence in your life where you don't use any credit at all? I, I want to challenge you, and I'm not a financial advisor. I'm a pastor. But I want to tell you where we are as a country, where our country is headed, the things that are going on financially. One thing you can know for sure, if you don't borrow money, you're not going to get in a ton of trouble. Just don't spend more than you have, and you'll be a lot better than if you do spend more than you have. Proverbs 22.7 says the borrower's slave to the lender. So as you put together a plan financially for 2013, that plan should not include to borrow any money for credit cards or lines of credit or, or anything other than the, the big financial gurus will say if you're buying a car, if you're buying a home, but certainly not for groceries and clothes and all this stuff, we're not going to use credit to live our life. Area number three, 
Here's where I'm going to get real passionate, but I'm going to save most of it for April because um, in April, well, in February, we'll talk about marriage. In April, we'll talk about parenting. We'll do a lot more of this then, but I'm going to hit some areas that I want you to talk about since it's January. I want to talk about family. What are your family goals for 2013? Because I'm telling you, man, the most important thing in life is family. As I sat around two family Christmas dinners in different parts of the country, I looked around and I thought, you know what, there are not going to be very many more, meaning a decade more of family Christmas dinners where everyone is here and everyone is healthy and everyone is alive and we need to enjoy family while we have family. So what are, what are some things that you should put in writing? What are some goals that you should have for family? Let me give you a few. Family nights. If you have kids that are elementary school or middle school age or even high school age, what are some family nights that you can have? I've been challenged by my church planning mentor to have one family night a week. You say, what does that consist of? That consists of turning off the TV, doing nothing but engaging with kids and knowing that this night is reserved for family. We eat at home and we spend this night together as a family. Perhaps family events. You say, what would a family event be as you plan for a year? Movies that you might see this year. Going to the zoo as a family this year. Going to see uh, fireworks on the 4th of July. Doing a picnic at Memorial Day. Taking a day to the lake sometime in the summer. Doing a camp out. If you have a little girl, a daddy-daughter date night. If you have a son, maybe a mother-son game night at Paradise Park or something like that. I'm talking about on purpose, in the schedule, night where your kids can know, hey, four more weeks till we go to the zoo. Couple more weeks until we have a family picnic. I'm, tell, I'm talking about making family a priority, putting it on your schedule, and having events that your kids will look forward to for the whole year and then remember for the rest of their life. One of those would be uh, bullet point number three, a family vacation. What are your plans this year to get away? What are your plans to turn it off? I call a family vacation, if you want to write this down, seven consecutive Sabbaths. What does that mean? Seven days where nothing is scheduled. I was challenged last year. My son plays competitive baseball. He played about 60 baseball games last summer. It's a really busy baseball schedule. We were going to have to miss a few games of baseball to go take our, our week-long trip down to Branson. And the baseball coach challenged me. He said, you know what? A lot of our families, um, they just use their family vacation for the state baseball tournament. And that, that is their family vacation. And I said, my idea of family vacation is not eating with 13 families three meals a day, and playing six baseball games over three days and never seeing my wife or my daughter. I don't know that that's going to be good bonding for us. So we'll go to the state baseball tournament, but our family is going to miss these three or four games because we're going to go away by ourselves for seven consecutive Sabbaths, a week where you miss church and you miss games and you miss work, and it's just you and your kids. It can be at home. It can be somewhere else. But what are your plans for family vacation? What are your plans, mom and dad, those of you who work for days off? That's part of God's bigger plan of creation, that every seven days there's a day where you kind of shut it down and you just enjoy family time together. The Bible calls this a Sabbath. What are your plans if you're married for a date night? And I'm going to give you some big date night challenges during our February series when we have a marriage series called Man Versus Wife, figuring out how to win in the battleground of marriage. You know, marriage is difficult. It's tough. One thing that helps you win in marriage are going on dates. What are some spiritual goals that you can set for your family? Family goals to move forward this year. You say, what would a spiritual goal be like? Is there anyone in your family who is a Christian but who's not been baptized yet? 
Is there anyone in your family or maybe as a family together that you could maybe memorize a few verses or memorize a, a book of the Bible together um, or memorize the books of the Bible together or maybe memorize the Ten Commandments? What are some spiritual goals you can set for your family? These are things you need to sit down and try to figure out. By the way, as I put this outline together this week, I've told Danielle more than once, we have some work to do. Like, we got to get away for several hours because I've, I've never really done this. I've never filled out this template. But boy, I want to. I don't want to waste my life. I don't want to feel like, man, I went a whole nother year and didn't accomplish anything of purpose. I want to write these things down. I want to do them. So I, I'm not the preacher here. I'm a husband. I'm a dad. I'm a Christian. I'm trying to do these things just like you are. Uh, area number four, we would call this career, is what Ziegler calls it. And you say, what, what, kind of, what kind of goals should I set, Christian, for my job? You know, I, I don't understand that. Is it right to set spiritual goals for my job? I believe that it is. Because the Bible speaks to it. Uh, and I want to give you two. We, in May, we're going to do a series called Take This Job and Shove It. And we're going to talk about how to exist spiritually in a world that, where maybe you don't like your job. Maybe you don't like your boss. Maybe you don't like the people you work with. Maybe you don't like the person who manages you. Or you don't like the people you manage. Or you don't like how far, how long it takes you to, to get to work. Or you don't even believe in what you're doing. We, at my sister's house this week, we ate Christmas dinner just south of Chicago. And then we ask, like, questions, just kind of get to know you questions. We do these crazy things with, with my family just for fun and to, and to have conversation. But one of the questions was, um, if, you, if you were to somehow become independently wealthy, would you keep your job? And half the people at the table said, I would quit today. I don't like my job. I don't like my boss. I don't like my hours. How, as a Christian, do you find great satisfaction and impact when you hate your job and you hate your boss and you hate your hours, are you just, is your goal this year just not to get fired? Or is it to make more money? Or do you ever even look at your job through spiritual eyes? Let me give you two things the Bible says a Christian should always have in mind when it comes to their career. Number one, perspective. Perspective. The Bible says that every Christian ought to fix their perspective to realize that in their, in their job, they don't work for a boss, they don't work for a man, they don't work for a woman. In their boss, you're working for God. Some of you are saying, my, my boss is way more like the devil than God, Christian. I don't know that I can do that. No, here's what I mean, Colossians 3.23. And I hope none of my staff ever thinks that, but you know, who, who knows? There are, there are good days and bad days. Colossians 3.23 says this, whatever you do, work at it with all of your heart, as working for the Lord and not for human masters. Man, some of you need to like write that verse down, memorize it, put it in your cubicle, have it become your screensaver, get a tattoo. I mean, some of you, some of you struggle at your job and you're bitter and you complain. You have a bad attitude. You're a bad employee and, and you're miserable the time that you're at work because your perspective is not that you are doing your job to make the Lord proud. The issue is that you're serving a human master that you don't like in an industry that you don't like, and there's a lot more complaining than perspective. So I want to challenge you in this new year when it comes to setting goals for your career. Serve, the, the old school way of saying it would be serve as unto the Lord. Go to work trying to make the Lord happy. Leave work trying to make the Lord happy. 
All of us have worked for human bosses that don't truly see what we do. They don't see the effort. They don't see what we do that's not asked of us. They don't see the, the little slip-ups that we cover up for other people. They don't see the work that we do at home on the weekends. And you know what? It doesn't matter because God does. He sees every second that we put into our jobs. He sees everything that we make up for. He sees all the things that no one else sees God sees. And he's proud of us and he wants to bless us unless, of course, our attitude is horrible. And we lose all our spiritual reward because we just have such a bad earthly attitude. So perspective is big. Secondly, under career, influence is big. Most people don't think this way, but they should. In 2 Corinthians 2.15, Paul talked about the influence that a Christian can have in a world that maybe not everyone in the world that we are around is a Christian. And Paul said, here's what our influence should be. We are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Paul is basically saying, when anyone is near you, they should be able to get the vibe from you that something's different. Man, have you ever driven by a steakhouse on a summer day with the windows down in your car, and like you can just smell like the rolls and the steak and the prime rib like calling you in, like you're stopped at a stoplight, and you're like, what is that smell? And you're like, I gotta go eat at Longhorn right now. That's what Paul is talking about. Paul said, when people get around you, they should stop, look, listen, and realize something is different. When I talk about influence, here's a question that I would ask you today. What one person at your job, what one person, what one family member, uh, what one family at your job could you set a goal to have lunch with, to have a spiritual conversation sometime in the next 365 days? What one person at your job could you buy a Bible for? for their birthday, or for Easter, or for an anniversary? What one person could you invite to church? One, what one person that you work with has kids that are the age of your kids that you could invite to the Easter egg hunt? See, most Christians don't sit down at the end of the year and say, this year, I want to influence one person spiritually. And I'm going to know their name, and I'm going to write it down, and I'm going to pray for them, and I'm going to continually think of ideas to, to, uh, and ways to let them know that I'm a Christian, and I want to try to get them engaged in what's going on in my life spiritually. I'm not going to judge them. I'm not going to force it down their throat. I'm not going to get in debate with them. But I'm going to try to influence them. What one person could be the one person this year that you pray God allows you to influence? See, many of you went through a whole year in 2012. And if I were to say, hey, what one person did you influence spiritually in 2012? You would say, I don't know that I influenced anybody spiritually. I would say, well, like, who did you, who'd you want to influence spiritually before the year and it just didn't work out. Most people say, I never, never really thought about it. We've got to be forward-thinking and influencing people spiritually so they can experience what we have experienced spiritually. Number five, what social goals can you set for yourself? You say, what do you mean by social? I mean here friendships, relationships. It's interesting, both the warnings that Scripture gives us concerning our social life and the wisdom that Scripture gives us concerning our social life. And I've put these verses on your sermon notes so that you can go and look them up later. But 1 Corinthians 15, 33 is a tremendous warning for our social life. Don't be misled. If you were here December 2, you heard Clayton King say this. Here's where the verse is. Don't be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. And not the band, the people. Don't be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Say, Christian, man, I feel like every Thursday night that I, you know, that I fail spiritually. Why? Because I go drinking with all my buddies at the bar. Well, maybe if you hang, hung out with different people on Thursday, you'd have a different result. Um, if, listen to me. If you are best friends with someone who's having an affair, 
That's not going to be good for your marriage. If you are a married man and your best friend is a single man who constantly wants you to live the single life, that's not going to be good for your marriage. Who are the people that just kind of being in your life, they influence you negatively? And I'm not saying, well, I want to remove myself from everyone negative. I want to influence as many of them as I can. But when they begin to influence me, I've got to break away. Socially, I've got to break away. There are some people, and here's a good question to ask your husband or wife this week, but before the new year really gets kicked in. Who in my life, like, would you prefer me not ever hang out with? Who, don't you, who, who do you not like me to be with? There, there used to be people in my life that when I would come home from meeting with them, Danielle would say, every time you come home from meeting with them, you're negative. Really? Every time. Every time you're with them, you come home and you're negative. I don't believe that. Like, yeah, you are. Um, so ask that question to your husband or your wife. Uh, Proverbs twenty two twenty four. another good warning. Don't make friends with a hot-tempered person. Don't associate with one easily angered, or you might learn their ways and get yourself ensnared. What are the bad habits you're trying to drop? If you hang around people who have those same habits, it's going to be more difficult to drop those. So these are social goals that you, that you can set. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12 is some of my favorite scripture in the entire Bible. And it's wisdom on friendship, not warnings. It says two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they'll keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? The one can be overpowered. Two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. What new Christian friendships are you going to establish in the year 2013? Listen, if I had enough money, I would pay all of you to go to a small group three times. Because if you went three times, you would make friends with another Christian person, you would love it, and you would go back forever. If I could get you to go three times. So I want to challenge you, and Pastor Ryan will be announcing this at the end of the service, and I will put this in every sermon that I preach in the month of January. I'm going to talk about small groups. Christians have to not, not only hang out with Christians, but Christians have to have Christian couples and Christian friends that they hang out with. You just have to. Why? It's just good for you spiritually. So if you don't have any of those, set a goal this year. I'm just giving you the framework. You need to figure out how you're going to fill it in. Social is, is a framework. Number six, mental. And I thought this was really funny until I started thinking about it. Um, and I realized what a head case I was and how mentally I need to really improve. Um, you know, some, someone asked me when I wrote this down, I thought, you know, how do you set a mental goal? And one of my mentors said, well, what do you struggle with mentally? Or how do you struggle, um, how do you struggle emotionally? And I thought, all right, I get it. Because as a pastor and just the life circumstances that I've come through in the last three to five years, I struggle a lot with anxiety. I, mean, I do. I get real tense with anxiety. I struggle a lot with worry. I mean, I, I worry way, way more than I need to. I overanalyze everything. I struggle a little bit with depression every now and then. I am an absolute control freak. And I started looking at some of these issues, and I thought, those are all mental issues. Those are all things that I know I struggle with, that I don't want to struggle with as much in 2013. So how, how do I figure out as a Christian, how to set goals to be less anxious, to worry less, to control depressive tendencies that can come on me, to not be a control freak, even though I'm trying to control depressive tendencies that come on me. So you can see how I, like, I am a head case, right? I mean, I need a counselor. Um, what are some ways to mentally improve your life, your worry, your stress, your depression, your anxiety, your control, your discouragement, 
your anger? What are some ways to take those emotional issues and control? 2 Corinthians 10.5 is a great, great verse. And it says this, Paul talking to the church in Corinth, he says, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. This is talking about mental strength here. Paul said, you just act like in your, in your head you've got a little jail cell. And before you let a thought get to the front of your mind where it will control your whole body and your actions and your emotions and your attitude and how you feel, before you let your thoughts control your whole body, you put them in jail first, and then the only guy with the key is Jesus. And he lets it out or he keeps it in jail. You capture, the word capture is in prison. You put every thought that you have in prison and then you let Jesus make the decision of whether or not it's allowed out to control you. So that worry about all the things that are going to happen in a day or two, you put that in jail, probably don't need to worry about that, and so on and so forth. Matthew 6.34 says about worry, don't worry about tomorrow. I mean, it like can't get any more simple than that. Don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. So I want to find out where mentally I struggle. And in 2013, I want to struggle less in those areas. And then finally, area number seven, spiritual. What spiritual goals can I set for myself so that I don't get to December 30th of 2013 and when some preacher says, hey, give yourself a grade for last year, you think, you know, probably like D, maybe C, it's average, I'm okay spiritually. But you set some spiritual goals so that when you get to the end of the year, you can honestly look back and say, I think I had the greatest year spiritually that I've ever had. And that's what I told our, our teenagers. Um, and I, I didn't put this message together because of it. I really, until I did what I asked our teens to do, I hadn't even given myself a grade for last year. But I thought about last year, and I compared it to the other years in my life, and I told our teens, I, I actually think that last year was the greatest spiritual year of my life. I know that I read my Bible more in 2012 than any year previously. I know that. I know that I prayed more in 2012 than I've ever prayed before in my life. I know that. Um, I memorized a Sermon on the Mount with a, a group of guys. Uh, I, I created and was engaged in some of the best Christian friendships with other couples in our church that, I, that I've ever had. After years of not having any friends, Danielle and I have several couples that we hang out with that we're, that we're real friends with. Um, my heart's desire for years has been to go serve overseas in missions. I had a chance to go to India and serve with orphan girls there. I had a chance to go to Israel and see the promised land, to be baptized in the Jordan River. And I thought back at my life, and I thought, you know what? I honestly think that like this has been the greatest spiritual year of my life ever. So if I'm not going to go downhill, I probably need to add some things. So I've just been wrestling in prayer. God, what do you want me to add to my life? Not to do more but to be closer to you because I don't want to stay where I am. I, I told our teens, it's, it's like I feel like this year in my life I threw a no-hitter. It's like the best game I've ever pitched, so now I need a perfect game to top that. And if I can get to the point where I throw a perfect game, I, I guess I'll try to throw two back-to-back. -back. But I'm trying to figure out how can I get spiritually better. This month or next month at our church, the whole month is about that. I don't have time in one sermon to set the template for you spiritually but if I have an entire month of your attention, whether you can be here or whether you have to watch it on the internet if you miss one Sunday, we're doing a series in the month of January called Soul Detox. Preparing your soul, your life, for your greatest year of spiritual impact. 
In the first week, we're going to talk about inner detox. What are some things that you can add to the inside of your life to get you closer to Jesus? The second week, we're going to talk about outer detox. What are some things in your life that you're doing that you shouldn't do and you need to remove from your life so you can get closer to Jesus? We're going to talk about relational detox. Who are some Christian friends that you can develop friendships with? Not exclusive friendships with, but friendships with Christian people so you can grow and, and maybe manage some relationships that aren't good for you spiritually. And then January 27th, we're going to talk about missional detox. What are some things that you can do to serve others that will bring you closer to God? One of our eighth graders today talked about how this summer was better for her than the rest of the year. And I said, what did you do in the summer that made you feel closer to Jesus that you didn't do most of the other year? And she said, I served a lot at cold water. And serving makes me feel closer to Jesus spiritually. So we're going to talk about that the whole month. But, but here's the deal. At the, end of, at the end of the day, at the end of today, at the end of this message, which is now almost over, I've given you an outline that you can throw away on your way out the door and not think of it and do nothing and just exist. Or that you can go home that you can look over, that you can set some goals, and then that you can do them. I, I, have, a, uh, I have a confession to make. Up until a week ago, uh, I had never watched a Star Wars movie, ever. Has anyone in here never watched Star Wars? Are you like me? Can I, can I, God bless you. God bless you. Okay. So up until a week ago, I had never, I'd never watched a Star Wars movie. So Danielle decided as a family over the Christmas break, because my mind races pretty crazy, and I struggle to put my laptop up, unless I have an activity to do. She says, we're going to watch the Star Wars movies, all six of them, um, between December 23rd and New Year's. And like, we got through five and a half and stopped. Like at the greatest point, we all just, it was like 1230 on Christmas Day, and we were at, at, at like at night, and we were all asleep on the couch. And I told Daniel, we should start, stop the movie and start it again, because you know, Chewbacca and Harrison Ford were yelling, and there's this girl with like cinnamon rolls on her ears, and she, it was just wild. And I was like, I don't even know what's going on, so let's just stop, let's just stop the movie. Um, but there was, there, was, there was this point in this one movie where as I had been putting together my thoughts for today, something was said and I thought, that really applies to my life and these goals that I'm trying to set for myself. There's this little green guy in Star Wars and his name is Yoda. Y'all know who Yoda is? Even if you don't know Star Wars, you know who Yoda is, right? And Yoda is a, is a little Martian Jedi guy who trains the other Jedis. And Luke Skywalker, um, Darth Vader's son, has been born, and he's trying to train to become a Jedi. So he had to fly to see Yoda, and Yoda lives in the swamp, and he crashed his plane in the swamp, and it sunk underwater. And, like, some of the things that Yoda teaches Luke to do is, like, to, to like levitate stuff with his mind and to move stuff with the Force. So he's teaching Luke how to like pick up a rock that's on the other side of the swamp and throw the rock and pick up a little bigger rock. And then uh, Yoda tells Luke, um, he says, pick up the plane. And there's like this, this spaceship that's underwater in the swamp. And Yoda tells Luke, pick, pick up the plane. And Luke looked at Yoda and he said, I'll try. I'll try. And Yoda said this. He said, do or do not, there is no try. And I thought, Man, that's a great line, little green guy. Do or do not, there is no try. I don't want you this year to try to do these things. I either want you to do them or to not do them. But there is no try. There's no week trial, month trial. Do or do not, there is no try. 2013 for you 
could be like 2012 for me. You could get to the end of it and think, you know what? Spiritually speaking, I think I could die and go to heaven because the things that I wanted to do with my life spiritually, I, I did this year. I, I, I put my mind to it, and I put one foot in front of the other, and I did. And now, now I want to do more to get closer to Jesus. But you, in these seven areas that we have discussed, physical, uh, financial, family, career, social, mental, spiritual, why don't we decide together this year is going to be the best one we've ever had in these areas. Like Habakkuk says, we're going to write down the vision, we're going to make it clear, and then we're going to run with it. We're going to write it down, we're going to make it, then we're going to run with it. We're going to do it. And we're going to have the best spiritual year of our life ever. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. And Lord, we are so grateful for the opportunity to study your word, to learn your word, and then to apply it to our lives. And God, I thank you for how you set the life cycle of the calendar, where once a year, um, it seems like, only because of the numbers on the calendar and the name of the months, it seems like every 365 days, we get to start over. So God, I pray as we prepare to start over this next 365 days, I pray that those of us who are dads will be better dads the next 365 than we were the last. I pray that those of us who are moms will be better moms the next 365 than we were the last. I pray that those of us who are married will be better spouses next year than we were this year. And those of us who are kids will be better kids and show more honor and respect for our parents next year than we did this year. And those of us who are employed will be better workers because we work for you next year than we did this year. And we'll manage our money a little better and way more honoring to you next year than, than we did this year. And we will, because you have given us these bodies to live our lives in, we'll do our best to keep them healthy. And if we need to lose a little weight, we'll do that. If we need to put our sleep cycle better, we'll do that. And what it, we'll begin to study to figure out how to stay physically healthy. God, that you'll help all of us who are mental cases like me to figure out how to get a little bit of a grasp on our anxiety and our emotions and our discouragement, depression, and worry, those of us who are control freaks. So we'll just relax a little bit and we'll conquer some of those mental demons that we seem to fight year after year after year. And spiritually, God, we pray that spiritually this month as we get into January, that we'll learn what needs to change on the inside, that we'll learn what needs to change on the outside, that you'll show us how to have some relational changes or additions or subtractions to our life that you'll show us how to engage missionally in a way that will change us forever. And God, I pray that this year will be the best that we've ever had. That we'll go home, we'll write it down, we'll make it real clear how we want to live our life, and then we'll run with it, and we'll do that. Thank you for the reminder in Proverbs 29 that without vision, people perish. Without a goal to run after, we just kind of exist. And God, we don't want to be a people that exist. We don't want to be a church that just exists. We want to be moving forward by the power of God for the glory of God. So God, help us to be determined, to be disciplined, and help more of us to do than those who do not. And Lord, help none of us to just say, oh, I'm going to try, but to let it kind of slip away. Be with this group of men and women and teenagers as they go home and set the course of their life for the next 365 days for the glory of God, by the power of God. We love you. We need you. 
We ask all these things today in Jesus' name. And everyone said together, amen.